everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Metaportal Podcast. I'm your host, AG, and uh, as ever, I'm joined by uh, Dark Forest Capital, and uh, we'll talk about all things Metaverse, as, as we usually do. Today, we also have uh, Andrew Steinwald with us, who is a, an investor in the Metaverse space, NFTs, kind of virtual worlds, and so on and also a fellow content creator and a host of the Zima Red podcast, which I know Dark Forest and myself uh, listen to religiously. Um, Andrew, thanks for joining us. How are you doing, man? Doing great. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for, for inviting me onto this. I, I recently had you guys on Zima Red, which the episode is yet to be released, but very excited to release that. And, uh, and you guys were awesome. So I'm really looking forward to chatting. Great. Well, this is us uh, returning the favor. A little bit and and uh you know interviewing you um i don't know how common that experience is i've uh i did listen to a few of podcasts where uh you were interviewed just to get a sense of um uh, kind of your ideas and and like perhaps your the investment thesis and different things but um yeah let's uh, try to make it a good one uh so why don't you just start with a little bit of your background as it relates to kind of NFTs and, and how you kind of found that that niche in the in the NFT sector of the crypto space? Yeah, awesome. So basically, I, I first got involved in Bitcoin in 2013. I had no idea what it was and just started buying it on, on Coinbase. Uh, it went up, you know, I was buying it $200, went up to 1000 and there was like, you know, a two week period where I was convinced I was next to Warren Buffett. I was like, I'm amazing. I'm so good at this. I'm incredible. And then uh, that lasted for, you know, two weeks and then the, the market crashed. It, it went right back down to 200 bucks. And I, I think I sold, I, I honestly think I sold at the very bottom. So if, if you look at 2014 and you look at the very bottom, that's probably me selling right there. And um, so after that period, I, I, I started to really dive deep into what blockchain is and what Bitcoin was because I, I didn't even understand what it was at all. I actually was um, getting almost all, all my information from these forums where it was like Bitcoin talk and other forums where um, everyone was saying like, oh my gosh, blockchain technology is going to change the world. It's amazing. And I didn't even know like what it, like what that meant. So it was after I sold, I started researching pretty heavily and and it took a few weeks for it to you know really connect to my brain. But when it did, I was like, okay, wow, these people are not crazy. These, these people are uh, you know, being completely accurate on, on how widely applicable blockchain technology will, will become in, in like almost every facet of life. I, I, I couldn't really think of a, of a way uh, or like an like a, uh, application that blockchain wouldn't really touch. And so uh, at that time, I became a big blockchain, not, not Bitcoin believer. I was like, the, the coins are all speculation. Like there's no need to actually hold Bitcoin. Uh, the real deal is building something with blockchain technology that that'll you know revolutionize x industry w whatever that industry might be and so i actually uh, was living in dubai in 2014 and you know being in dubai uh remittance is, is a huge kind of th thing over there i think 90 percent of the population in dubai is, is foreign and so uh, once a once a month they have salary day and you'll see people just lining up around the block sending money back home and you know i would talk to people that i was working with and say hey how much how much what are your fees for when you're sending your money back to Philippines or India or wherever? Like, oh, it's like five to ten percent. I was like, oh my gosh, like these people are paying five to ten percent to send money that they've earned and, and sending it back home, right? And I, I thought that was outrageous. And I, I was researching, you know, okay, what what kind of blockchain solutions are there for this? And of course, I, I stumbled upon Ripple, 
Um, and Ripple back then was all about remittance. Today, I, I have no idea what they're like supposed to be, you know, what, what the narrative is around Ripple. But I, I became totally enchanted by Ripple and, and the promise of it. And I thought, you know, Ripple was like the future Bitcoin. And I, and I was just a total XRP fanboy, um, which is funny how, how times change. But um, so in 2014, I tried to set up a, a remittance business utilizing Ripple. I, I was uh, coming up with all the kind of the, the, the business plan and how it would work. And my thought process of setting up kiosks that uh, just had kind of Ripple tech inside of them. So people would literally input their dirhams, which is like the native currency into this kiosk and almost like a, like an ATM. And then it would kind of do everything on the back end for them. And I, I, and I met with developers out there. And one of the developers actually I met was the only Ripple developer out in the Middle East at the time. He was living in Abu Dhabi. And I, I, I remember I somehow got his number and I cold called him. I said, hey, hey, man, his, his name's, uh, I think his name's Yevgeny or something like that. I forget, but he was like this Russian-Ukrainian guy. And I said, hey, hey, man, like, my name's Andrew. I, I really want to talk to you about this business idea I have. Like, in, in like, hindsight, this is crazy. Like, if I got a call from someone today saying, hey, I got your number, like, off the internet, and I want to do a business with you, like, that sounds insane. And obviously, this guy was, like, very sketched out. And um, I actually took a bus over to Abu Dhabi um, and met with him for lunch at, the, at, at this hotel one day. And it was just, I talked for like three hours, like straight. And he didn't say like a word the entire time. And it's just like, hey man, we're going to do this thing. And this is how it's going to work. And it's going to be amazing, blah, blah, blah. And very enthusiastic. But he was just like, listen, like, like this technology, he, like finally at the end of the conversation, he's like, this technology is going to take years for it to hit widespread adoption. Like you are, you are way too early and I don't even know you. So like, like this is not going to work out. And I was, I was totally crestfallen. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy doesn't understand the, you know, the, the, you know, what, what, what we're on to, on to here. I was always saying like, we, like, as like, he already agreed to it, but he hadn't agreed to anything and um, very disappointed, but I, I realized, okay, I need to just figure out what, what else can I do to, to, to contribute to this ecosystem? Cause I knew it was going to be big. I just didn't know how. And so uh, fast forward, you know, tr trying different ideas here and there. And, uh, but by the way, I had a full-time job while living over there. So this is nights and weekends project really. And then it, it was 2016. I moved back to Chicago, which is where I'm from. And then I dove deep into uh, blockchain accounting for local governments to track property taxes because everyone's always saying, you know, where are property taxes going? And I, I'm a big, big believer in um, kind of the government being able. So if the government was more transparent in where they're actually spending money, then a lot of the issues, I'm not saying it would solve every issue, but a lot of the issues that we face would be mitigated, not eliminated, but they would be much less because people could complain about, hey, you're spending money on this random thing that doesn't matter, right? Versus like education or like healthcare or whatever. And so I was, I thought, okay, what we could do is we could Trojan horse our way to have, you know, global governments utilizing blockchain-based accounting systems that are totally transparent and, and, and users, you know, pe sorry, people, citizens would be able to see where the money's being spent. And I thought, okay, if we start with small local governments and with, with, with the premise of, hey, you guys can save a lot of revenue every year by adding more transparency to this process because um, you'll be able to see where, where every single penny is going to. My thought process was to essentially create a, a, a token, you know, it, it would be, let's, I mean, this is probably a bad analogy, but let's just call it like Tether, you know, and, and this token would connect to every US dollar in like the government coffers. And somehow we would design a system. And again, this is like very high level. We would design, design a system where this, this token would uh, flow. Uh, you, you could follow the flows of the money because you'd follow the flows of the token. And so it, you would see, okay, a million dollars went to the fire department, a million dollars went to police department, a million dollars went to here. And, and my thought process was, if you're able to 
add that level of transparency, we're actually seeing at where every dollar is moving to, then, then a lot of issues, like a lot of government kind of issues would be mitigated. And that, that was a high level thought process. I, again, it was a similar situation where I was pitching all my friends that studied computer science and um, were technical. And, and it, it, it was just another situation where they're, listen, like you have no relevant background in this. You have no relevant expertise in this. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was like, again, a situation where I'm calling someone out of the blue saying, hey, let's do this together. Um, that was very enthusiastic. I, I tried to meet with my, oh, actually, I did meet with the mayor of, of my local suburb of Chicago and, you know, talk to him about this idea. And he was like, this is incredible. This is amazing. Oh my gosh. You know, I'll, I'll call you soon. And never, never, ever called me. Right. Of course. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was at that point where I was after that point where I was like, you know what? Um, I'm maybe not the best founder and, and like in the sense of no one will, no one will even join me in, in these endeavors and these things that I'm trying to do. And I sat back and I was like, listen, like, I'm not an attractive prospect. I understand that. Um, now at the time I didn't, but now I get it. Like, why would anyone join me on these crazy ideas? But all I want to do is like contribute. So I was like, okay, what, what can I do in order to get involved? And I thought, okay, you know, there's, these coins are all speculative, but now there's a lot more coins than there were in 2013. I'm going to start investing directly in these, in these tokens and these coins and try to make money that way. And then I can kind of figure it out. And so I, I jumped back into investing in the tokens in 2016, uh, got you know extremely lucky with the timing because 2017 happens and my portfolio increased enough in value where I thought, okay, well, what I can do is I can start a fund because the, the, I'm clearly not a great you know, founder myself, but what I can do is I can try my hand at deploying capital to the best teams and to the best founders, right? Because I I knew I knew you know more about the space than most, but still comparatively I knew like compared to the top people I knew like nothing. But I, I didn't know that at the time. I think being naive really helped me in, in, in a lot of things, and still to this day does. So I I uh, knew nothing about you know how to set up a fund, how to operate a fund. So I teamed up with my good friend Dan Patterson, who is my investment partner at Sefermion as well, and we ended up launching a crypto fund in July 2017. He worked in private equity, so he knew all about how to set up a fund, how to operate a fund, how it's structured, et cetera, all that stuff. So, um, and he also knew a lot about crypto. He he got involved in 2014, and I've I've known Dan Patterson or Dan since I was uh, six years old. So so we grew up together in Chicago, and right out of after Duke, which is where he he went, he he uh, went to Hong Kong and worked in private equity for like five years. So, anyways, like total you know kind of different background than myself, and that's why I, I think we we make a really great team, but. We ended up launching that crypto fund and you know we did well but after about a year we realized okay wait a second um we're we're, we're not truly outperforming our peers so so we're we're doing okay but we're not crushing it and if you look at our competitors they were like just going you know our, our, they were really really crushing it and these are firms that these are our funds that launched after us and so we thought wow okay what are we doing wrong and we realized that in order to really outperform we're going to need to focus on a niche within crypto and, and so, so that was our thought process. So in 2018, we started to dive deep into uh, DeFi and quickly realized that is not our skill set. That, that is a very technical kind of quantitative skill set that we just don't really possess. And uh, so what we did is we, we started looking at NFTs uh, because I, I bought CryptoKitties in 2017 and kind of messed around there, but, but nothing really kind of co connected on a, on a broader scale for me. But then at the urging of a friend that was telling me, listen, uh, NFTs are not just crypto kitties. They're not just arts. They're going to be so much more. You, you really need to, you know, explore the space more. Um, I thought, okay, let, let, let's dive deeper here. And I, I ended up going to NFT NYC, which is the NFT conference in New York. That was in February of 2019. 
And I, I got there and I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to everybody and just kind of figure out what the buzz is about. Because everyone there was like super excited and clearly understood what I didn't understand yet. And I was like, okay, well, I need to get some of this enthusiasm because I, I don't get it. And so uh, normally it takes me like weeks to, for, for something to really click in my brain. I'm not a very fast learner, to, to be totally frank. Um, but I spoke to one guy, his name is Jin. He's pretty popular on, uh, on Twitter. He's a big crypto voxels guy and kind of big metaverse guy. Um, his, his, uh, Twitter handle, I think is dank VR. Anyways, I sat with Jen for like four hours. It, it was something outrageous. He, he wasn't a speaker. He was just a regular person that I met this conference and he had his iPad out and he was showing me like crypto voxels and showing me all these kind of different, uh, virtual worlds that he was like building or, or hadn't been involved with. And, and he was telling me that he's like, listen, uh, all these assets in here will be represented as an NFT, all these assets in this virtual world. And I was like, wait a second. So like everything on the internet is going to have some sort of uh, value to it, even if it's like, you know, fractions of a penny. And he essentially was like, yes, he, the, the way he was talking was com completely different than, than how I ended up kind of uh, gathering my, gathering the, the information. But what I took from our conversation was he was like four point, he basically was like this 4.6 billion internet users. That's your total addressable population here. These people are all connected to a, a uncensorable 24-7 financial system that is crypto. And, and, and then suddenly you add an NFTs, which are just digital property rights. So, so suddenly anything on the internet can now be turned into a tradable asset. And I was like, wait a second. Okay, so biggest population, seamless financial system. I mean, this is seamless comparative to the traditional financial system. Seamless financial system. And then you add in, you know, every, every single asset can now be turned into a tradable good on the internet. I was like, oh my gosh. World's biggest market, without a doubt. This is it. Like it, it clicked right there at the conference, and I remember freaking out, being like, oh, I, "I couldn't sleep for like two weeks after because I was like, holy shit! Like this is that. This is what we were looking for." And, and I also thought I was just onto like something massive. Like I, I thought that this is going to radically transform uh, society as a whole because it, these assets, NFTs, enable uh, the metaverse to form because no one wants to spend a lot of time, money, and effort into their digital lives if they can't own their stuff. Like, like it's almost like living in a, in a communist country or a, a, in a country with a capitalistic, capitalistic system. It's like, I would rather my time, money and effort, you know, be built or, you know, kind of generate wealth in a, in a place where um, I, I can, you know, build my life in compared to a, a place that's communist where it's command control economy, where, you know, if I uh, work really, really, really hard, and try to you know generate wealth for myself. It's just not really possible. And so I viewed NFTs as as kind of the 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 baseline entity or or uh, infrastructure that we needed in order to add capitalism into the, the internet. And so so I thought, wow, the, the system was communist before. Now it's turning into to, ca to, to capitalism essentially. The amount of value that's going to be created over the next you know 10, 20, 30 years within the internet. Is going to make the last 30 years of the internet look stagnant by comparison. And my brain was just exploding, firing at all cylinders. And I thought, okay, we need to launch uh, a fund totally dedicated to this space. Uh, because originally we were just going to put, uh, we were going to set up a new fund and add that into our crypto fund. But the more we researched, the more we, we, we dove in and, and invested, we thought, okay, well, the, 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 it's both built on crypto technology and crypto infrastructure, both crypto and NFTs. But the the value drivers, the strategies, the communities, they're they're almost entirely separate, and so we need a fund totally dedicated to the sector. So that's when we set up Sofermion, and that was in September of 2019. 
And, uh, and yeah, so, so, you know, ever since then we've, we've, you know, have been doing well, we've been investing in everything from direct NFTs to tokens that relate to NFTs to venture investments. And we have two, uh, vehicles now. And so one is a, I, I, I guess kind of like a hedge fund. I, I don't really like to call it that, but you can consider it like a hedge fund and the other thing is kind of like a venture fund. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that is my very long winded way of telling you, uh, how I got involved in, 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 in NFTs. Dude, that's a. That's a crazy story, um, especially the like the government piece uh, to me is really interesting because I just had a conversation with someone a couple of days ago. We were talking about how like if government spending was on blockchain, right, anyone can see where the money's been spent, like it'd be much easier to sort of track overspending and, and corruption, all of that would actually streamline government. And I think like we generally in the in the age of like government having to get smaller to compete. So that something that was sort of aided, but yeah, to me, that, that was, that was fascinating that you were trying to do it in like 2015, 2016, man. That's uh, that's, that's a bit early for sure. Um, look, let's just chat. So what I'm thinking is uh, we'll just talk a little bit about kind of the high level metaverse, thesis then we'll, we'll go into um sort of one of the building blocks which is nfts and then depending on time we might talk about maybe like virtual property or uh, social tokens or some of these other um narratives other sort of building blocks so with uh kind of metaverse you know uh, i'll just uh for for the purpose of this episode let's use a very broad definition of metaverse as basically just a virtual environment that eventually becomes indistinguishable from reality and and where we humans sort of spend most of our time so the way we see it right like metaverse does not really happen without blockchain like in the way that we see it would you agree with that statement like do you think that kind of corporate metaverse is like works? Do you think that's uh, something that, that we should as, uh, aspire to? Or do we have to have blockchain underpinning this? Yeah. So I think that metaverse is is a term like saying internet. It's very, very broad. And there's a ton of different definitions that you could really kind of dive into and harp on. For me, I just say the metaverse is a virtual environment that people live, work, and play in. It doesn't actually have to do too much for myself with the immersion that, that people are feeling where it's you can't distinguish can't distinguish the metaverse from base reality. For me, it's mostly about um, yeah, living, working, and playing. And the living aspect, if you look at today, we already spend the vast majority of our waking hours, most people, and most people in the West at least, spend the vast majority of our waking hours uh, staring at screens. This is TV, computer, cell phone. So we're already essentially living. We're already at that point. Uh, working, I'll get to. And playing, of course, you know, like people are playing video games and, and doing all sorts of stuff online already. So we're already uh, playing and socializing in, in, inside these virtual worlds or virtual environments, whether it be Discord, whether it be a game, et cetera. The working aspect, that, that, that's what was missing before uh, NFTs. Of course, people could work remote. And in that sense, you are, you are earning value and you are able to um, kind of work inside the metaverse. But for me, the definition went a little bit further where you had to actually earn, earn value native to the internet. It couldn't be like, oh, I'm working at, um, I don't know, this is you know, consulting company and I do phone calls. Therefore, like I'm working the metaverse. It was like, no, no, you need the ability to earn value native to the internet. So like, like 
go play this game, acquire a digital good in that game. Like let's say you're mining ore or whatever, mine that ore and go sell that ore on a market, all, all native to that game or, or to that virtual environment. And then you sell that for, for quote unquote fiat, you know, quote unquote real money or fiat currency, right? I think that to me was, was like the, the missing piece of the puzzle that enables the metaverse to form. And so, so that's kind of, yeah, definition there uh, for myself. And so, um, yeah, will these kind of corporate metaverses co come to be and become very popular? I, I don't even consider them metaverses. I, I, I think Facebook has a virtual kind of world that they're creating and different big tech companies are creating different virtual worlds. And I, but I don't consider them the, the metaverse or like the open metaverse. I consider them a great marketing tool for the open metaverse because they're introducing the concept to a lot of people that don't have exposure to crypto and don't really know as much as, as, as we do to the idea that, hey, there's a virtual environment and you're going to be able to live, work and play in. But yeah, no, I, I definitely do not consider you know, the Facebook world to be uh, an actual metaverse. I consider it just like a, a gateway drug for us, like the open metaverse. Um, so, but what I do think is going to happen, they will create those things. They will be very popular and there'll be walled gardens, but um, every year or every day or you know, however long, there'll be people that are siphoning off uh, out of those environments to the quote unquote capitalistic free societies, right? Because um, it's almost like, again, it's like command control economy, communist system is Facebook and people will escape, you know, jump over the Berlin wall, if you will, into the, the, the free societies where they can earn a living, where they can uh, own their stuff and, and they really feel secure and have rights. That's how I kind of see it playing out over the future. Why is the earning in the native token so important to how you see this? Because I can imagine, you know, Facebook building their corporate sort of metaverse environment, having some sort of corporate token. Uh, so you can do tasks within the system and you'll earn the token and then you can sell it for fiat, right? Like, how is that different from what you can do by playing Axie or um, by participating in the DAO and so on. Yeah, it's kind of like Roblox today, where Roblox, you can earn Robux, which is like the native currency for Roblox. And you can do all sorts of stuff with that. You can buy digital goods. You can, anyways, there's also, it's just like almost like a cryptocurrency, right? But the issue is that there's so many limits and controls onto what Roblox, uh, onto what, yeah, Roblox has a ton of power on what you do with your Robux. And if you want to turn that into fiat currency, I think the, the minimum you can do at a certain time is $1,000 at, at, at one time. I think the maximum is something like $100,000 per year or something like that. Um, so there's all these kind of limits on what you can and can't do. And I think that really stifles innovation. I'm a big believer that um, you, know, you need to have experimentation in order to, to, experimentation and less rules in general in order to create the most dynamic environment from an economic standpoint. And so I think Roblox with the Robux, it does work. It works today and it works effectively. You know, they're valued at like $46 billion or $50 billion or something like that. Um, so people like it. But again, it's a situation of like, do I want to be beholden to an entity that can delete all my cash at any point? Because let, let's say I've worked, you know, for two years and I have like, I don't know, a million Robux. I don't even know if that's a, that, that's a lot, but let's just say I have a ton of Robux and I tweet like, you know, Ro Ro Roblox sucks. I hate it. And, and screw Roblox. No one, no one should play it. And then the people there see it, they can say, hey, look up Andrew Steinwald and delete all this stuff because screw him, right? Um, that is like a terrifying 
kind of that's a terrifying situation that uh, is possible. And I want to I want to be in a world where that's not possible. I, I want to you know use all my time, money, and effort in, 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 a, in an environment where that's where that's literally impossible. Um, and I know that blockchain today, a lot of these worlds and stuff like that are are not perfect by any means. You know, there's a lot of centralization, but but we're headed in the right direction with the, with these technologies. So that that that's that's what I'm about is okay, how can we utilize this technology to to progressively get better and better and create an environment where um, yeah, it just, it just there there are strong rights and strong quote unquote laws around your, your the stuff that you own because uh, if you if you can't own your stuff, then you can't generate wealth and and after that, then it's just like, okay, well, what's, what's the point of trying, what's the point of even trying, you know, it's like, if you work at a, a factory in, in communist Russia or whatever, um, you know, people are like, well, I don't even want to make this, this widget today, because uh, I know that I'm going to get paid the same and there's no chance of promotion versus in, in the capitalist, capitalistic system. Uh, I'm working at this widget factory. Hey, if I work hard enough, maybe I'll get promoted to manager. One day I can run the factory, right? So, so there's that real sense of optimism versus pessimism. Which I think is needed for society to to continue to, to to grow and expand. So, I've had a bit of a back and forth with um, a guy called Josh Rosenthal on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen his um, Bankless episode or any of the the stuff that he's done, but he's like a, a historian that's also interested in crypto, and he's describing what's happening at the moment as a, a crypto renaissance. Um, and it's about I've been talking to him about like rights and how they're recognised and how uh, we kind of cross that chasm between where governments are today and what we're all doing in the crypto universe. So I just want to jump back really quickly to something you said a minute ago, Andrew, which was like people will be looking to jump over the Berlin Wall where they can to a place where they can earn and have rights. And I just wondered if you've spent any time thinking about how those rights uh, emerge. Um, obviously, we have like phrases that we use like code is law and stuff within crypto, but what have you thought about what it's going to take for real world entities and real world um, organizations and governments to start actually recognizing this stuff as legitimate? Because it's all well and good you earning in, in the metaverse, but if you can't offboard to fiat currency, like is that going to present a problem um, in some places maybe? So yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts around that. Um, is it all? Does it all come down to game theory at the, at the end of the day where basically governments are going to look up and realize that if they don't embrace this stuff, they'll miss out on a ton of tax revenue. And that's what gets them to, to move in that direction. Um, what do you think? Yeah, it's such a, such a good question. It's super, super hard. Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's awesome. I don't know how it's going to play out. And so, sorry, I should have kind of clarified on the fiat currency point. That's the world that we live in today, where you, fiat currency is needed to pay rent, buy groceries, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the meme is, is you hold... Bitcoin, or you know, you hold your crypto uh, long enough until you until you uh, was until you don't need to anymore. I, I forget the exact phrase, but it's basically saying that you want to hold because people are like, oh, when you sell, you sell Bitcoin at a million, you send at 10, at 10, 10 million, etc. And the people are like, no, no, you sell it until you don't need to sell it anymore. Or sorry, you hold it until you don't need to sell it, which basically is is implying that eventually these kind of currencies and technologies are just going to be adopted, and and you won't need to sell into your fiat because because people will accept. Bitcoin or they'll accept Ethereum or accept Solana or whatever, right? Um, so how will governments kind of adopt and corporations adopt this, this kind of technology? I don't see them doing, doing it readily at all. Like it's, I see it, it's gonna, there's going to be a big fight. And I spoke with Gabe Lydon, who is 
he was on Invest Like the Best podcast, which is like one of my favorite podcasts of all time. He is the former CEO of Machine Zone, which is a big gaming company in the States. And he was saying, and this is just a regular phone call we had. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, can you come on the podcast? And he's like, oh, I just another podcast. I don't want to come on another podcast. Anyways, he was basically saying that, listen, Bitcoin and crypto in general has not had its, I forget how we call it, but it, it was a religious situation where like the, the, um, the religious kind of leader or whatever is like crucified and then like ha- has to be resurrected. And he was like, listen, Bitcoin and crypto, they haven't had that. They haven't had that big fight yet. They haven't had the, the where governments and the SEC and everyone's fighting them and making it illegal. And, and he's like, that will come. And, and the real test for Bitcoin will be then because if Bitcoin and crypto survives after that period, that's when we know it's the true, the true thing, the true quote unquote, like savior of, of, of our system, because really there haven't been too many impediments to, to the progression of this stuff yet. And no great movement or technology or revolution happens without that, that kind of sacrifice that, that kind of uh, res- resurrection situation where the thing is killed and it comes back to life even stronger. And that to me was like really, really interesting. And it goes into the, the thoughts that I have that um, crypto being a religion and, and how crypto is replacing religion for a lot of people around the world because it has a lot of kind of char- characteristics that are similar to religion. And um, anyways, that, that, that's a whole nother kind of tangent. But yeah, so we haven't, we haven't had that point yet where governments are really, really fighting it tooth and nail and, and making it illegal, like kind of crypto te- technology more broadly. And I, I do think that Gabe's probably correct where that will happen. And we might be seeing the very beginnings of that now with the, Gary Gensler and the SEC really hammering down on crypto and, and hammering down on, on you know, actors that the government deems are, are, not, uh, are not playing fairly, which I think is kind of absurd. But, but anyhow, so I think there's going to be some sort of big fight. And uh, after that, we'll, we'll have to see how the, these corporations, governments adopt this technology because they have no incentive. Like why the point of people being in politics is power. And so why would you give up your power? Like the whole point is power. And so they're not going to say, wait a second, let's, let's actually give up our power because this is more efficient technology. Like, no, 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 like that, that, that would totally defeat the purpose of, of, of what they're doing. And so I'm pretty kind of, you know, bearish on governments and, and, and corporations adopting this on a major scale uh, in any sort of true way, kind of a fully decentralized way. I mean, we've seen a lot of corporate chains and, and th- things of that nature where they're dipping their toes in and kind of messing around, but I don't see them doing, you know, for example, watching this accounting system like, like that, that would be very unusual for them to do. And I, I don't see anyone implementing that anytime soon, a big or small country. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really have a good answer for you. What, what, what do you kind of think? How, how do you think it, it'll play out? I mean, so I was listening to you talk and a few things that you've said uh, so far already were actually just making me think that it's almost as if we could form a DAO on the internet that just replaces a government. If we had people in, in as part of that DAO in the right places with enough context, knowledge, and as you say, power, um, like the, a, a government is just so inefficient and they've got there through sort of legacy decisions and everybody takes it for granted. I can't help but think when I think of how I journeyed down the rabbit hole to understand what money is, now that I've moved away from DeFi and um, focusing on the metaverse and NFTs, I'm starting to fall down a rabbit hole where I understand what laws are and how governance is done and how decisions are made and, uh, and what rights are like and how they emerge. 
And it's an, it's just another one of those things where you start to strip away the layers and you see that we only do these things because that's how we've done them for so long that when people are born into this system, they don't question it, they take it for granted. And actually, it's not necessarily the best way to do it. And there are te technologies available that might democratize access to, you know, wealth and maybe even possibly happiness um, through like actually adopting them. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just starting to think about it now and hearing you talk about it is is forming my thoughts as we go along. But I just thought that was a an interesting one because I, I see it the same as you. I think there's going to be a big fight um, at some point, probably. I mean, it kind of always has been, but it's it's going to rear its head. And I think we are going to have to face the final boss like directly. Um, but what comes out of that and, and what it's going to open up for people is is potentially massive. Yeah, and then also you said DAOs, um, you know, potentially we could set up some sort of system like a DAO that replaces some sort of major government or governance in, in our current system. My issue, um, and this is like a very kind of weird thing that I, that I think, I think people, uh, and, you know, my, myself included, people can, power can affect them. Uh, and so let's say, and I, I know DAOs are decentralized autonomous organizations, of course, but like the current setup of DAOs, um, you know, there's still, we still have a long way to go until they're really decentralized because right now there's a few people that kind of run the DAO. You know, there's like, there's like the head of a DAO, like, oh, I, I'm on a phone call with this, this guy or girl who's like the head of this DAO. Like that, in theory, that that's like a weird thing to even like consider because that shouldn't be allowed. But I think that we're going to need governance by AI. And I know that's, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but I, I don't, I just, I don't think people can be, um, can forever be kind of thinking about uh, what is fair and what is right. I think people get drunk off power. And so, for example, let's say, you know, president number one, president number one, George Washington, whatever, really good dude, right? All for the country, like really, really happy and trying to do everything correct for the country and really sets things up great in, in a way that is really effective and, and all the systems in, 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 a, in a great manner and blah, 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 right? He dies, president number two comes in, president number two is like a total asshole and he wants power and he's going to kind of rejigger things in a way that are, is great for him, right? So even though the system's designed in a way um, where everything was good because president number one made it really good, president number two comes in, he starts rejiggering the system. So it's not great. And that's why I'm, I'm a big believer that like long-term, I just don't see how, I don't know, we're, we're going to be able to really have a, a truly fair government without sort of some sort of AI system that is completely fair and how that looks, how that operates, how, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of question marks with that. I don't know, but I know humans love power and they can get power drunk. So like we need to eliminate humans out of that process. I know that, I know it sounds spooky, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Oh man. Um, I, several things, I think on the AI specific, right. I do think that we'll be able to figure out decentralized governance before we get to figure out AI governance. And I do think that decentralized governance would be better than the existing governance structures that we have in, in the traditional world. So, so going off that, are you talking about like direct democracies like Switzerland or, or are you talking about on a deeper level, like a DAO, a truly decentralized you know, DAO-based governance? Ideally, right, truly decentralized DAO-based governance. And, and like you said, DAO governance is, is, is nowhere near where it needs to be. Um, to be applied in in the real world, whether it comes to 
uh, government or uh, corporate even, I would say. So we do have a lot of work to do. But I think we'll, I think this is basically going to be the upgrade to governance, right? I think we're going to go through several levels of um, innovation and, and iteration and changes in decentralized governance. That is going to be crypto native, right? Like it's going to be, it's going to originate in, in all of these experiments that are going to happen in, uh, in crypto DAOs. And then, uh, Eventually, we'll get to a point where it becomes bridgeable enough to to the traditional world, um, where it can replace the existing governance systems. I think that's like, in my mind, that's more realistic uh, in terms of maybe short to medium term uh, than AI AI based governance. I think there's, there's just so many moral issues as well with with AI uh, governance, right? Especially or like AIs in general, given that. AIs will make decisions and it's going to be really hard for all of us to understand how they arrived at those decisions. Um, so that's where my, that's where my thinking is on, on the governance side. I, I have to agree with that, that AI in its current iteration would be terrifying to, to actually govern because, you know, there's the, the old paperclip story where like the AI turns us into paperclips because like it was told to make paperclips most effectively. And it turns out that by destroying all humans and turning them into paperclips, it, it accomplishes that goal. Um, so like, obviously, yeah, and in AI's current iteration, we are nowhere near. But how do you think that truly, like, in your opinion, what is a great looking, what DAO has great governance? Or if you could kind of you know, hypothesize on what system of DAO governance would operate the best, what, what does it even look like? Does that mean like, everyone is active all the time and voting on every issue all the time or, or what, what does that what does that look like i'd probably hand it over to doc forrest i think he's been looking into dog governance a bit deeper than than myself um Forrest, you want to take it away <laughs> um i mean it was your bold statement ag that uh that that sparked the conversation but i, I don't know i don't know that um that i don't know that we have an example today but i would say that I place faith in the speed and uh, iterative nature and just the amount of like big brains in the space that something will emerge from crypto in the same way that the DeFi ecosystem pretty much has come from two or three years work. Not to, um, not to discount anything that happened before, obviously without Bitcoin, without Ethereum launching, you know, none of it would, would be possible. But the, the way that that, ecosystem developed was insane like DeFi summer was insane and i think people keep saying you know it's going to be time for DAOs. it's going to be time for DAOs. it's going to be slower but everybody is working on it like if you want to tokenize everything and you're going to have token holders involved in governance then you need to solve human coordination problems um, in order for that to work so i i think i wouldn't point at any one specific example right now um, but i would say that I have high confidence that it will emerge from what we're doing, that a better way of coordinating people and, and governing people will emerge. So I, I have to generally agree with that. But my thought process is, let's say, you know, right now we're at the very early stages of DAOs. And if you look at, and I keep going back to like American governments because I'm, I'm American, so I know more about it. But the early stages of America, uh, most participants that were kind of setting up America at the time were very 
um, true believers, diehards, you know, they really believed in a, a better system and all this stuff. And now, you know, you look at the state of American, American governance and people that are more so power hungry and um, less th- thinking about the ideals of, of, you know, America and whatnot. And it's because it's, it's there hasn't been any kind of iteration and we're, we're stuck with this kind of legacy system that I think you, you guys point out before has grown to it's like metastasized into something that's not super effective anymore. Right. I mean, you, you could argue, right. Um, and so, you know, are you thinking about DAOs in the future, let's say 20 years from now, let's say that there's one DAO 20 years from now that, that, that's still around and still active, like the participants in that DAO, maybe those people are, are kind of the power hungry type and less so the idealistic type that, that we, that we are, you know, we're, we're the true believers. We're the ones that want the space to evolve in, 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 in the correct way. But in 20 years time, the people that are governing the DAOs, you know, maybe some important DAOs, they're less maybe focused on that and more focused on power. And therefore you, you get these, like, how do you solve the human issue? Because I feel like we're, we're, we're going to get, I don't know. I, I feel like everywhere where, um, you know, people in legacy systems get involved, it tends to work in favor of those that have power instead of those that, uh, you know, instead of like a, creating a better system, right? So have, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Are DAOs going to have to like, I don't know, re- reform every couple of years? Or what, what do you guys think? Um, I mean, at a smaller scale, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, being involved at Index Co-op, like we've been looking at how we govern ourselves, how we organize ourselves. And it's kind of a topic that's that's been at the center of everything we've been doing recently and uh, autonomy. Um, like we, we formed an autonomy group to go off down, down this direction. I just think that, um, it, it just comes back to like the emergence of, of ways of organizing ourselves. Like if I look at, um, how money moves around in crypto and between DAOs, I, I think if somebody was to try and control something in that way, it wouldn't work. Like that's, Crypto is a trade against legacy systems, and and the reason that it's working and money is flowing in is because it's a trade. It's like a bet against that legacy way of working, basically. At the moment, again, that's mainly DeFi, but I think there are other things that are coming on stream at the moment. So, I, I think that if we can set things up in that's based around the way that people think about things who are early to this system then that kind of situation won't emerge because yeah if somebody tried to like create a monopoly then it, it's just you know uh, capital will leave i think um you'll get like a brain drain away from whatever that dao is the same because i, I don't i just don't see how that can arise uh in this kind of environment because it's more adversarial more transparent so I, I don't think the conditions are right for that type of power grab to to work. I would also say that like we already we already see that type of behavior in in DAOs uh, on, on a certain level, right? I think whenever you have sort of humans involved, you you end up so slowly drifting towards that that um, power grab nature or some of these. More, more negative, more, more toxic things. But that's where I think crypto um, does give us tools to design around that, right? Like when we're talk, talking about governance, we can talk about things like 
reputation-based voting, right, uh, within DAOs. We can talk about um, proof of personhood voting to make sure that, you know, you're one person and, and you can only vote once as opposed to you control 20 different wallets and all of those vote. You can talk about quadratic voting, different uh, different configurations. Uh, maybe it's a council or some other um, some other elected body that is elected more frequently. So there's there's a lot of these things that we can experiment with. So I, I really think that like most of the people who are sort of thinking about it and in a sort of playing around with optimizing decentralized governance are designing with the understanding of sort of human emotions and human failures and trying to design in a way that makes that sort of less less possible and i think like and i think we'll get there i think we'll we need we need tooling obviously and, and that, that's gonna that's gonna develop but I do think that I'm still I'm still optimistic. I'm like less optimistic than I was, you know, six months ago. But um, I, I do think that we can we can do a lot of things right. Yeah, and, and also I, I want to clarify that I'm really really excited and very very bullish on long term growth uh, of DAOs, and I think that DAOs are going to be um, a major force for good in the world. Like I, I think they're going to be incredibly impactful as much so as NFTs, right? So I, I want to state that, that I'm, I'm not like a, a DAO hater by any means. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm just always concerned about humans, like, because if, if all humans are out to operate in these environments, mostly through economic incentives, then we need to develop uh, systems, like as you said, quadratic voting and all, all these kind of different things, where, I don't know, the, the participants are on an even, even playing field and the, and the, I guess the, the, the incentives align um, in, in a way where, well, actually, that, that, that's a hard thing because if a DAO's purpose is, is to you know, increase its value, let's say it's like an investment-focused DAO, then, then yeah, then I guess the, the incentives can be, uh, will we'll all be geared towards that versus like, hey, guys, we're setting up a DAO to like plant trees and, and on earth or whatever, right? So um, I guess it really depends on what the DAO is set up for. And also like I'm, I'm, you know, harping on certain things where, uh, you know, DAOs are essentially, they've been, what, two years old? Like, they're, they're very, very new. So I'm not expecting, it's almost like, you know, people saying, oh, well, NFTs have so many problems, uh, therefore, they'll never be, never be adopted. It's like, yeah, no, I, I think DAOs have uh, some issues today, but I do think that over time, we will solve those issues. Everything that we're talking about, pretty much, is a, is a uh, can be solved through technology. Not everything, like human nature, obviously, can change through technology, but it can be mitigated through technology. And, um, and I think that technology is obviously like a steamroller that just like doesn't stop ever. And so I'm very confident that, uh, you know, we will have solutions to 99% of the problems. My, my only concern is, uh, you know, how do we, how do we mitigate the human nature aspect of, of, of DAOs, which is, which is funny, but, um, but anyways, that's kind of my, I'm just rambling now. So yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, Kind of accounting for the human nature is going to be uh, really quite important. Uh, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and and, and talk about NFTs, right? Um, I think like I personally believe that sort of all and every asset in the world 
will eventually be on chain and um, a lot of those assets will be NFTs and, you know, we'll have millions and millions and millions of, of NFTs in the future. Uh, so start from the basics, like how do you, when you talk to people who are not into crypto, not into NFTs, how do you explain NFTs to them? Yeah. So I, I just say that NFTs are digital property rights. Like that, that, that is like the very kind of basic uh, kind of framework that I use. And I always try to make things as simple as possible because like this, this world is so new and confusing that I always try to distill everything down to like, okay, what, what is this, what is really actually important for? And just for me, having property rights in, in a digital environment is very important. Um, as I mentioned before, for economic growth and prosperity and all these other reasons. So I describe NFTs as digital, digital property rights. But one thing I'm also learning is that NFTs also, that they're not just that, but I, that's why I like to say that, that, that they are to make it simple, but um, they're also like a, a container where you can just put different things inside. And you mentioned just previously that, you know, almost all forms of value will be represented on chain as an NFT. I totally, totally agree with that. I think um, right now, the use cases we're seeing for NFTs are, you know, art, collectibles, gaming, these unregulated, unregulated markets that um, innovation can happen very quickly in these markets because they're unregulated. And we're seeing a lot of experimentation, a lot of really cool things pop up, but um, where NFTs will eventually, you know, enter are the more regulated industries and markets, such as like you know property, uh, financial contracts, IP, royalties, like all sorts of these different things, and um, and also of course like physical goods. Like I think that uh, you know your your pair of like really rare like I don't know Yeezy sneakers or whatever will also uh, come with an NFT component to them. Um, so I think yeah, most forms of value will, will be represented on chain as an NFT, and. But this container idea is really interesting because you can fit certain, you can just put different things like inside of this container. So um, we're talking to, I mean, I don't know if I can say this, but anyways, we're talking to a ton of really, really cool projects that are on the absolute bleeding edge of NFT technology. And we're like, what we have today on the current market is like scratching the, the absolute surface of where they're going to go because these things are way more, uh, NFTs, they're way more um, kind of applicable to to like uh, like basically every every industry. And I'm I'm trying to think of what I can say without without giving away anything too crazy. But um, basically, NFTs are very close to um, well, they're currently in the process of entering different financial markets, and the innovation that we're seeing there is is mind bending, and it's going to really change the way how uh, the current NFT markets are 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 kind of structured in a in a market sense because right now it's very kind of centric on uh, buying and selling peer to peer and then also buying from a company. We're going to introduce a lot of financialization to the markets, which uh, of course you know there is higher risk to that. So on one side, it's like okay, well, only people that are experts in that arena should kind of participate, and on the other side, it's also introducing it's lowering the barriers to access to a lot of NFTs. So. And that's kind of that's on the opposite side where it's it's that's more kind of I guess retail friendly if you will. Um, I hate to use that word, but like the, that's kind of like what what people call it. Um, but yeah, anyways, I, I can't I can't dive too too, too deep in, in, into that specifics into the specifics of that. But um, yeah, it's going to be be very exciting very soon. Yeah, I think uh, we kind of think about NFTs as sort of verifiable digital ownership, right? And and in in that sense. It's like that's what unlocks 
this this concept of ownership economy, right? And and whenever like the way I like to think about metaverse in general is like it's like global economy 2.0, right? Like it's basically this next level of global economy empowered by NFTs and tokens that provide sort of true ownership. And that global economy 2.0 will be the sort of ownership economy. So in that sense, like I see NFTs as really sort of enabling that transition. And then when you think about kind of everything that's happening in, in ownership economy, I would say that play to earn is, is also part of it. It's, uh, it's like a massive, massive market. And it's, it's really hard for me to even put like, numbers around it. Yeah, I think someone, I had someone on my podcast recently that I called NFTs the atomic unit of account in the metaverse. I, I'm pretty sure that, the, that that's how they explained it. But, um, and that really makes a lot of sense to me. It's like everything in the metaverse will be represented as an NFT. You know, your, your like Axie, your digital couch in, 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 your, in your digital home. Um, you know, your sword, whatever, all, all sorts of different stuff, your, your ID, you know, all sorts of different things. And I, I think that's a super interesting idea is that NFTs are like all the stuff in the metaverse and crypto, like the tokens are like the money of the metaverse. And, and yeah, this new economy that's forming now is really kind of flipping the current paradigm of the internet on its head from value extractive of users to value additive. And, and that to me is like the, the, one of the biggest things here. It's like, wow, the, the, the current structure of, of how the internet operate the internet operates is just completely changing to to really being a, a force multiplier for users and really rewarding users for the behavior uh, and really for the time money and effort that they're spending uh, in these digital environments so like if I could use Facebook and get Facebook stock that 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 to me is like the the, the internet that we're headed to um, obviously that's very you know not not how how the system's set up now. Um, so I think it's a it's a huge shift for a lot of major companies and participants that people are gonna have to get used to. But that that's that's the direction that we're that we're headed. So we started this new section by asking the question, uh, how do you explain NFTs um, to maybe people that haven't come across it or they've heard it on CNBC but they don't really know much about it? I wanted to ask you, Andrew, do you see? people learning about this stuff um, and starting to use it the same way that like me, you and Artem did, where we are introduced to it very vaguely. Maybe we're, maybe we get a wallet um, or, you know, if I'm thinking about how my friends have got into crypto, but the reason that I'm going down this track is because I'm thinking back to what we were just talking about, where if, if governments are fighting this and I know certainly in the UK, there's barely any like financial education growing up. So by the time you leave school, you haven't really got a clue how all this works. Uh, that's why you see people get into credit card debt, not very good at managing their finances. But if this opportunity is as big as we all think it's going to be, I just wonder, do we leave it to the fact that this whole thing is like a massive game? Um, because it, like everything in the, in the metaverse is, is gamified. And we use that to like drag people in and they learn through trial and error. Or do you see this as needing some kind of like focused education? Um, and, and you would imagine that like, you know, initiatives to educate people around it will arise over time. Yeah. Okay. So another really good question I, that I, I don't really know the answer to, but I'll, I'll just, I'll take a swing. So you, you, I guess like if you think about it, um, 
you know, the metaverse is a gamified environment, but also, uh, and, and the, 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 you know, the incentives in that gamified environment are, are like cryptocurrencies or NFTs or, which is essentially value, which is like money. Right. And the, the incentives in our physical world is the same thing. It's just like you, you go to work, which is a, a quote unquote game where you're making widgets at the factory and then you, you get your reward, which is the money. So it, like, it's, it's like, which is like points in a game or whatever. So like, it just, it's, yeah, it it's just the, the the gamified environment is is the actual world that we're just bringing that onto the internet, you know, through this through these technologies, through you know, blockchain and crypto technologies. So, yeah, do we need? Um, so first of all, I, I think that like they're the same essentially, like the the physical world and the metaverse world. There um, a lot. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of different differences, but in terms of the gamification, all the incentives are economic. Therefore, they're they're pretty much similar. Um, and then. In terms of do we need education uh, to onboard people into this world, I, I would I would love to see that. Um, but again, I think we would need some sort of economic incentive. So right now, the, you know, the cost of tuition in, in the states is is like something outrageous. It's like I think on average it's like thirty or forty grand per year or something like that, um, and which is like a five hundred percent increase from the past ten years or something like that. And everyone you know agrees that the education has not gotten five hundred percent better. Therefore, like what what is going on here? So, you know, there's a huge economic incentive for uh, universities and, and school in general in, in the States, at least, um, you know, for, for, for yeah, for, for people to set, set up schools and operate schools and whatnot. So I would imagine um, people will set up some sort of, and I'm sorry, that was a tangent. Like, it's not meant to say we should do the same thing in the metaverse. We absolutely should not do the same thing. But what I'm saying is that um, people will create economic incentives to go to school and, you know, maybe there'll be some certificate you can get where, Okay, I'm a Dow master, um, or, you know, I, or I'm an expert Uniswap trader or whatever, and that'll kind of be your, degree, uh, you know, d- diploma or whatever. Um, but w- what I what I love is that, uh, and I think uh, Rabbit Hole GG and also um, Galaxy, uh, they both are working on on chain, looking at your on chain activity to kind of give you rewards in some sense. So Rabbit Hole is more of like looking at your on chain activity. Um, and you accomplish different tasks and you get rewards for that. So like, okay, go, go take out a loan on maker or like, go do some trades on Uniswap or whatever. Right. And you do those things. And it's like gamifying your, your activity, uh, like within, within the, you know, quote unquote metaverse. And then galaxy is also really interesting. I, I'm, we're investors in galaxy just for full transparency. Um, what they're doing is they're rewarding users with certain badges based off their on-chain activity. So if I've done like, you know, a thousand Uniswap trades, or whatever, I can get this cool, you know, master Uniswap badge. And so people can just go to my profile and they can see, oh, wow, Andrew's got like, you know, six different badges all from like Uniswap. Therefore, he's really good. Uh, you know, he's a really good trader at Uniswap. It's almost like a your, your new resume. So in terms of bringing on people that have no exposure, like that is like a, a lot, uh, many, have many levels higher than, than, you know, that, that wouldn't be too helpful uh, to, to them because they're like, holy shit, like, how do I do this? Um, so, yeah, I think initially bringing people on, it'd be great if there are some simple and cheap economic incentives to, to educate people with the basics. But then go, going like beyond that, getting into your quote unquote college level courses, it's really all about kind of experimentation and utilizing these protocols and platforms yourself. Because the best way to learn anything is just by, by doing. Uh, but I will say like, it really does help when, you know, if I'm trying to take out a loan on Maker or whatever, I can like Google 
or go on YouTube and say like, Hey, how do you take out a loan on, on maker and, and follow someone's process? So, um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I don't have a, I have a good answer for it, but, uh, but yeah, I think that there's there, it would be cool if there was a, you know, quote unquote class or courses that help people, um, kind of navigate their way into, into this world. It's funny rabbit hole comes up in a lot of our podcasts or, um, certainly when we speak to people in the metaverse, but I don't see many people actually go crazy for it, but I think what they're doing is brilliant. Um, I didn't know about Galaxy, so I'll have to head over there and see if I'm due any master of Uniswap badges or probably master of getting wrecked would be more realistic for me. But yeah, I'll go and check that out as well. Um, Another thing that I was going to say is I would say that the financial incentives though are there already. Like I, I think layering more on top of it is not going to necessarily get more people in because I can think of people who I've sat and talked to about this and they say, Oh, you know, I want to get into it. And then when you tell them about it, you see their eyes glaze over and actually, um, I, I just don't think no, like any amount of money is really going to get them to, to move across. So yeah, I, I'm just interested in like how that, what becomes the tipping point for people. And, and I think that's why NFTs were so amazing in the past year because we've seen like artists get involved or people who you know enjoy digital art or, or musicians like is opening up these different pathways where if it's not purely financial because again financial people's eyes glaze over they tend not to be too interested in it um opening up those other pathways that are more exciting i think is is the way uh, that we get more and more people to come in um the final thing i was going to say is so I'm going to chat with some of my friends and I wanted to get your thoughts on, on this discussion, Andrew was um, I'm like super bullish on play to earn. And uh, I was trying to explain to them how I think that people will be driving axes, not taxis as, as Gabby likes to say, and trying to explain how big I think this can be. And they said, well, if that's the reality, then people won't be doing real world jobs. But my response to that is I think it just acts as some kind of arbitrage where if you're a nurse or you're maintaining like water treatment systems in the real world, you just have to be paid better in order for that to work. Like, do, do you agree with that? Do you think that's how it will sort of turn out that people just have to be paid well enough to do the real world jobs that are still important? Whereas today we, we see people who do, do stuff that is generally regarded as being super important, like teachers, nurses, whatever, but are just paid really badly. Yeah, no, it's a really, really, Again, your questions are just so hard and awesome. Um, okay, so yeah, it's actually a big concern that I have is that it 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 will in our lifetime, I believe, this is like you know, forty years out in the future or something. It's going to be very hard for us to compete with the physical world because th- th- there's going to be jobs in the physical world and the the environment in the physical world will be less compelling than the di- digital, meaning that. If I'm, and this is like a, you know, in the far future, I'm like fully jacked in. I have my headset on and my suit or whatever. And I, my brain is tricked into thinking that the experiences I'm having are actually real. So maybe, you know, in, in this environment, I'm, uh, and, and no, there's a brain machine interface as well. So I'm, they can stimulate my neurons to activate my sense of taste, touch, smell, et cetera, all my senses. So I can, you know, for lunch, I can go eat a steak and my body will think I'm having a steak, but in reality, I'm like eating air or whatever. Um, and so like th- that kind of stuff, uh, is going to happen. Um, you can look at, I-, I did a, I did a blog post back in 2018 about 
uh, brain machine interfaces and, and how, how they'll be utilized in the metaverse and stuff like that. And my concern is that already today, we're able to activate sense of taste, uh, smell, um, we're able to restore uh, movement to people that are paralyzed. We're able to move uh, computers with our brains just by, by you know, our neural signals. Control Labs is a company that was bought by Facebook. Um, we're able to restore vision to the blind. It's not full vision. It's like kind of very partial black and white dot vision. It's like very, it's not full, but they can still see objects, you know? So like we're able to do all these things today. And so you have to extrapolate that out, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, it'll get much more advanced. And if we're able to activate every single sensation sitting down connected to a computer, then it's going to be very, very hard for us to leave that environment. And so one of my concerns is that um, why would anyone support the, the physical world environment? Because as you mentioned, why would you drive a taxi, which is you know, harder to, to do than, than uh, farm axes, right? Or you know, to, to battle axes, right? Um, so how, how that's solved? Yeah, sure. Like we can say it's economics, which, you know, in the, in the past has proven to be accurate. If you pay people more money, they'll more likely, you know, they're more likely to do that job. Um, but also I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty concerned about how that would function. So, but, but, but in theory, if you have 90% of the world's population inside of this, you know, these kind of virtual environments living there and existing there, then those jobs outside would be very, very important, like water treatment and, and, and stuff like that. Um, because it would be required for us to, to actually live. Therefore, uh, those jobs in theory would be very high, highly paid. So it makes sense that there would be demand there. But but it's 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 going to be we're going to go through a period where it's going to be interesting because like the incentives for people to um, work in, in the Philippines, for example, with Axie, it was much better for them to to actually you know play Axie. For, instead of go and, and you know manage a taxi or whatever to do whatever job, and so and I'm sure now now there's probably some sort of equal equilibrium to that, but there'll be periods of time where there's spikes where it, it won't make sense to work at whatever job maybe you're a construction construction worker or whatever, um, and people will like stop going to work because they're like wait a second, I'm making triple as much money in this game, you know doing this this process why would I do that why would I go to my physical you know physically hard demanding job of construction. So, yeah, I, I don't have a very good answer. It's going to be very interesting and it's going to be uh, bumpy. But, you know, what we've seen over time is that these things uh, kind of study themselves out. You know, there are periods of fluctuation and kind of volatility, but over long enough time spans, thing, the, the volatility kind of smooth, smooths itself out. So, yeah, that, that, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping. But we'll, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll be there to see. Yeah, that's uh, such an interesting topic. Um, like two things for me on, on that, right? Like one is I think in 2018 or, or, or 19, I wrote like a, I don't know, 12, 15 page uh, paper on AI and its impact on like labor markets, right? And um, even then you had a big range of like, you know, how many jobs are we going to lose to AI over the next decade or so? Like um, some people were saying it's going to be like seven to 10%. And, and some people were estimating that it could be well over uh, 50%. And from my perspective, um, I thought that we're going to lose a fair share of jobs. And one of the arguments that, that people were using was that, well, like every time a new technology was developed and disrupted labor markets, before 
we uh, like we created more jobs. We created different jobs, new jobs, and I was like, yeah, okay, but I don't quite see how how that happens this time around. Just because pace of change is is so quick, people don't don't have time to upskill. We don't have systems to upskill people. So I was, I was, I was quite pessimistic. But now I'm actually thinking that, uh, of course, like a lot of those jobs that you're talking about will be automated, right? They will be replaced by metaverse jobs. And those that will remain, right, that, that require a human, maybe it's a nurse and so on, will get paid better. And I do think that we do have to shift towards some sort of um, UBI eventually to support sort of minimum minimum required income um, for for a person to to live I I personally think that that's kind of how it's gonna play out and and like another aspect to this is um, degradation of like the physical world right like with with climate change and and so on and also if you look at urbanization, the, the, like the massive growth of uh, some of the cities in, in Asia and Africa, um, as well as in some of the developed countries. And the fact that like in like we have less and less degree of freedom in the physical world. So it, it again makes much more sense to me that we almost have to shift digital, like we almost have to go and exist in the metaverse. Um, because the physical world is, is sort of less welcoming uh, for us, and and is going to get is going to get even less so. Um, so it's kind of my take on it. I I, I think uh, yeah, I think it's gonna it's gonna kind of play out naturally, but I do see some of the trends uh, that are happening with AI, machine learning, as well as climate change, sort of aiding this this transition to metaverse and, and metaverse related jobs. Yeah, I think that um, yeah, you hit upon, hit upon a lot of really important pieces there. Yeah, in theory, right, there should be, um, as, as we progress in technology, jobs are destroyed, but then new jobs emerge to service those, those, uh, those kind of new jobs or new kind of processes that pop up. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, the pace of change is accelerating. And so will people have the time to, to upskill. That's also a, a, very, a big question that, that I don't know. Um, and then, and then when you're introducing AI into stuff, when AI can learn a, a process in, 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 a, in a couple hours, uh, very, very well compared to a human can in, in a couple of weeks, then there's also like more questions on, on that front. So yeah, we're, we're long-term we're we're going to be entering a spot where it's, it's going to get, um, it's going to get very weird and I don't know which direction it'll go. Um, but in, in the kind of, and this is like, you know, hundreds of years and in, in the short term, the next, you know, kind of 20 years to 30 years, I think that, uh, you're right about kind of the world is becoming, I think around the, yeah, around, around the world where things are becoming a little more authoritarian, uh, and governments are, are kind of clamping down on power and we're seeing, you know, this post-war post-World War II period of peace. Um, I think that's, that's very unusual. I don't often think that, you know, the, the natural state of the world and humans in general has been conflict. And so to have uh, one kind of, kind of country, America, um, become the quote unquote world police for better, or for worse, like it, it did cause a long period of, 
of peace. And now that America is kind of, you know, losing a lot of its significance and power comparatively, um, we're seeing the rise of, of uh, kind of more potential conflict zones. And also the, the world, world governments in general are becoming more authoritarian uh, in their stance on things, America included, right? So um, I do think it's, it's a great time for people to have a, a place to quote unquote exit where people are leaving, they're exiting the society or the country that they're existing in and they're moving fully to the metaverse. So I think that that's really, really fortunate timing that we have that potential escape. And then also like it, it goes, it, it kind of, it also connects with this idea of the decreasing levels of, of what is it called? Religious, religiosity, or I don't even know, like people are less religious than they were before and they're searching for meaning and they're searching for connection and togetherness. And again, the metaverse is now emerging where that represents a great uh, conduit for people to focus their time and energy on these environments. Because, you know, instead of going to church every Sunday, they're going on to Discord and hanging out with their friends. You know, that maybe they don't know their friends um, super well in, in person, but they know them really well online. And so, yeah, we're, we're, it's, we're entering a very weird time um, where there's a lot of global kind of geopolitical factors that are happening. At the same time, it's almost like a balloon. They're pressing on one side and it's inflating on, on another side. And that, that activity uh, is, is moving to this metaverse, to, to this virtual environment where people are connecting. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't know where this is all going, but I, I do think that the, the, the emergence of the metaverse is, is one of the most important things uh, for humanity as a whole um, to really continue to basically just, just thrive and keep innovating and keep on building. Um, and that's, that's number one, but number two, it also represents uh, a big threat in the sense that if we're all uh, living inside these virtual environments, this is in the far future, we're all living inside this virtual environment and we have no, and we, we don't feel the need to kind of keep innovating outside of this virtual environment. If we don't want to go to Mars and build a base or do whatever, then what does that mean for us as a whole? Is, is this like the great filter that, that people have been talking about? So um, anyways, yeah, I, I could, I could kind of talk about this weird stuff forever, but, but th those are my, those are my thoughts. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, I don't know if you've read uh, Sovereign Individual, but like one of the things that uh, they're talking about is um, how return on violence, right, like has been rising throughout the 20th century, but is actually declining um, through like starting from, you know, the beginning of the 21st century and going forward, um, which means that like operating at scale, whether it's industrial or government, uh, is actually not beneficial anymore. And and so they're talking about how that's going to lead to smaller governments, smaller countries, autonomous zones, um, and the ability for people to move capital and move geographies uh, over the internet is like one of those things that will sort of break down the existing system to sort of scale it, uh, scale it down. But I, 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 would also, I would argue that governments are getting larger. And, and I think that you can look at the States, you can look at China, uh, you know, I don't know too many other examples that are in a major way, but I think government is getting, uh, they're getting more power and becoming more intrusive. Would you, would you say that that's, that's the opposite is the opposite trend is happening? I, I would say so. I think that they are like, in some cases they're getting bigger and more intrusive, but at the same time, they're getting more and more and more pushback. And people do have means to push back now, right? Uh, for example, if you're a company and your government 
uh, taxes you too much, right? You can move. Uh, it's much easier to move now than it was 25, 30 years ago, right? Like with uh, everything as a service, right? Like I can literally set up anywhere. I can automate most of my functionality and I can just focus on one thing that I do well. Like the the companies are going smaller. I think the amount of uh, small businesses between like one and 10 people, one and 10 employees has grown exponentially. Um, so I think the existing environment where moving capital, moving people is extremely easy, right? Smaller scale is, is more beneficial just because if you're small, you're mobile and you have like a better ability to change direction, change policy, attract capital. You can look at like Singapore, Hong Kong, Switzerland, um, some of those countries as an example of that, right? And then so goes back to our earlier conversation about uh, the final boss being the government um, and, and in particular the U.S. government. And, and in my mind, like, okay, if U.S. government chooses to do something insanely stupid, um, all of that innovation is going to go elsewhere because the incentives for other countries, for smaller countries, to pursue favorable policies when it comes to crypto are just too good. And especially in some of the regions that have for decades, right, been uh, hostage to American financing, to American monetary policy. Like, it's just, it's too lucrative for them to pass up. So even though I, I think that if you guys do something stupid, like, it, it is going to affect the space, but I don't think it's going to meaningfully change the trajectory. And it goes back to, I don't know uh, if you've read anything by uh, Daniel Suarez, uh, sci-fi, um, Dark Forest put me up to it. And uh, one of his books talks about how uh, it's, it's focused on uh, genetics, right? And, and basically in, in the book, right, uh, U.S. took sort of very strict policy on changing uh, DNA, right? Playing, playing with DNA and uh, playing with genetic editing and so on. And all of that innovation moved um, elsewhere. And now US is basically not, not a successful country anymore. And, and I think that's, um, that's extremely likely um, in the event that US chooses an adversarial action just because of the alignment of incentives. Yeah, so, so I, I totally agree with that. I think if the US does not embrace uh, these technologies, whether it be you know genetic technology or whether it be crypto or whatever, um, then that innovation will will move elsewhere. That that's that I agree with. But um, the situation that we have in the states, in, in my mind at least, is that uh, the, the the current people in power, and this goes back to like our talk about kind of DAOs and having people uh, inherit like legacy systems that are not you know quote unquote true believers of that. They're more so focused on on making money. I think that the situation in the States has gotten to a point where the people in power, they are affected by the existing power structures. So, you know, let's say that some politicians are getting money from, you know, you know, through lobbying from, from the traditional financial system, right? So, so they're, they're getting paid uh, to disincentivize, you know, innovation in crypto and they want to support the current old regime, right? And that, that's something that I think has been uh, has been happening for a while, and, and we've actually made it legal in America for for, for people to to do that. And so I don't see um, I don't see us changing course on that anytime soon. I think that uh, even though 
uh, it logically makes sense um, that, hey, you should allow innovation because it's better for people as a, as a whole, because generally more jobs are created, more economic growth, et cetera. Um, America's gotten to a point where it's such a captured system that, that you know, the politicians don't care. They're looking at their bottom line. They're like, okay, well, I don't, it, I, it doesn't even occur to me that, uh, that it's going to cause more innovation. Sure, whatever. I care about getting elected again. Right. So, and getting, elect, uh, 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 getting elected one more time means I need more money for my campaign. And I know that JP Morgan or whoever, right, is like donating money to me. Right. So, um, so that's, that's one thing I think is happening in terms of the innovation going uh, across borders. I think that's great. I think that is happening. But one um, issue or one issue I see potentially could happen is that we're kind of cracking, like countries are across the, across the board are uh, kind of cracking down a little bit on, on um, kind of the the freedoms that the, that 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 their people have, like China, for example, uh, they they are limiting video game play to three hours per day for 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 people, and they're also uh, now they're they're not they're very very slow to renew expired passports now. Um, it's an, under the guise of COVID. I think COVID was like a boom for uh, authoritarian governments, um, and I, I was just in yeah. So it's so like that kind of stuff is happening where um, they're limiting the movement of their people because they know. Oh my gosh! Like people can go to Hong Kong or Singapore, or Switzerland, and easily set up a company and thrive and, and do all sorts of cool stuff. We don't want that to happen. We want them to stay with us. Um, so that's that's one concern I, I see happening. And I think COVID really uh, allowed governments to overstep their bounds significantly. Like I was just in New York City, and in order to go anywhere, actually the first hotel that, that I got to, um, they, they wanted to see that both of your vac- vaccinations were because they want to see your vaccine card. They want to see that you have both vaccines. I was staying with someone else and that person had one of, of their doses, not, not the full two doses. So we couldn't stay at the hotel. Right. Um, and, you know, mask at all times and all sorts of different stuff. And like, I, like, you know, I, I don't want to say that that stuff's not effective, like vaccines and masks have been proven to be effective, but I just don't like the idea of governments having that much power, you know, you know, like it, it's just something that makes me nervous. And because if they're forcing us to do this today, maybe tomorrow they're like, Okay, everyone. You know, I don't know. Send us, send us every single bank transaction. I mean, they already have that information, but I don't know. Like, I, I don't like the idea of of governments feel like, hey, innovation's going going across borders. We need to crack down hard, and we'll use like any any kind of um, kind of crisis that we can. You know, they say like never let a crisis go go, go to waste. Um, we use any crisis that we can to really kind of crack down on or kind of crack down on people uh, doing things that are out of our purview, but. Um, anyways, that that's again a, a tangent, but but yeah, that, that's how I feel. I feel like we're um, it, it's it's we're in a kind of a, a nervous environment right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's jump uh, jump back to NFTs a little bit. Um, so the way I've sort of experienced uh, or, or the way I see the market of the NFT space right now is that it's, it's sort of mostly like collectibles and gaming, in-game assets, and and so on. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about like the collectibles, right? Whether it's punks or apes and, and so on. Like, I think for a lot of people, it's it's really challenging to understand why why these things are sort of valuable, why why they're important. Um, so maybe you can give us a little bit of context on on that. Yeah, I think this is a pretty it's a pretty broad question, right? Because a collectible is just is just some sort of thing that people like to collect. Like a, the, the definition is like that. Um, so it's, it can be literally anything. If you like to collect like water bottles and like 
that can be considered a, a collectible asset. Um, it's really up, up to the, the to the community of people that that are that like that thing. Um, so I think what's really great is that yeah, like we saw NFTs, they really started innovating in inside the collectible space, the art space, the 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 gaming space quite quickly. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense because as a collector, for, for from my own experience, and everyone's experience is different because collectibles are so subjective. But what I love to do is let's say I'm really into Pokemon cards. I, I love to collect Pokemon cards. And maybe I like to show them off to my friends. Like a big aspect is like the social aspect. And I could go to my friend's house and drive to each one of their houses and show them my collection. And that'd be great. And, you know, we could, we could, you know, have, have uh, be excited and go to different meetups in, in, in Chicago and, and show off our cards or whatever. Um, but it'd be really, really great if all that stuff was online because the frictions of showing everyone about uh, showing everyone your different collectibles and showcasing that and, and kind of connecting over that. Um, kind of that experience is, is really, really important to that collectible having value. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really, really interesting to see the different trends in the space, um, especially with like, I always like to say like NFT markets are highly cyclical and they follow different narratives. And so like summer of 2020, we had virtual land narrative and virtual land was going up in value. Then after that, we had play to earn. So like axes were going up in value. That was like September, like October, it was like the fall. And then winter we had art and collectibles with traditional IP that really had a great boom up until like spring of this year. And then we had kind of collectibles with metaverse native IP. So people were launching, you know, the, the profile picture projects, the PFPs or whatever, and people were launching like 10,000 of ducks or like cats or like whatever. And I think that we definitely uh, were in a period of total speculative mania, but I think that that's totally normal in any sort of new market to, to experience that. And I think it's actually healthy because it brings in more capital, which brings in more eyeballs, uh, both on the builder side and on the investor side. So I think that that's great to really kickstart a, an ecosystem. And in terms of punks, like the, the value driver around uh, collectible assets, like, like, like CryptoPunk is really the narrative or story around the asset. And again, this is my personal opinion. And if you look at CryptoPunks, they just have a really, really incredible story because uh, they were considered, they're, they're not, but they were considered the first uh, collectible assets on, or the first NFTs on Ethereum. And uh, even just being considered that is, is you know important enough. And there's you know they're limited to ten thousand. Uh, they have different rarity traits, which is great for collectors because they can say, oh my, my zombies extra rare compared to your you know guy with the spinny hat or whatever. Um, so that's great for like a sociability kind of narrative aspect. Uh, again, uh, they they were made by you know, two guys in Brooklyn, two two geniuses in Brooklyn that have worked on a whole host of different kind of software products. Um, so. Oh yeah, and they're also given away for free, so it's kind of very Bitcoin style, where anyone could go, just go claim them for free. So yeah, there's it's just all these pieces add to this this story, and the story is what drives you know the narrative is what drives the value with these collectibles, and that narrative has to catch on to a broader populace uh, in order to continue to increase in value. So other people have to say, you know what, CryptoPunks are really cool for X Y Z reasons. I believe in them. I'm, I want I want to buy one, right? Um, and this is from a, like an economic standpoint. A collectible doesn't have to incre keep increasing in value in order to be important. I think that that's uh, that that's not that's not completely necessary. I think it helps a lot, but it's, it's definitely not required. Um, so, like CryptoPunks could just stay this value for the next you know ten years, and that would also be fine. Or even they could drop you know fifty percent in value compared to what they are today, and and that'd still be fine. Um, but yeah, I, th I think what we're seeing um, is that. Uh, uh, I mean, with CryptoPunks, people still really love them. They're metaverse native, so people like that. Um, we're now kind of, I think, I think now we're we're leaving 
this, this current hype cycle uh, of metaverse native uh, IP, and maybe we're entering a new cycle and something else, who knows what it's going to be. I, I, I never know, like ahead of time, um, it could be virtual land. It could be gaming assets. It could be whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think that, that that's what we're seeing, which is a normal, um, normal cycle within the markets and CryptoPunks just happen to be very well positioned within that, within that environment. Can you talk a little bit about like this whole concept around like status as an investment or like digital flexing with, with punks and so on? Like, do you see that as a sustainable narrative? Like, do you think that's something that, that, that we're going to sort of live with for, for a long time to come as, as we sort of transition to, to the metaverse? Oh yeah. Okay. So the secret sauce, like the secret power behind NFTs are these like quote unquote human factors. You have, you know, uh, social, like these assets are social in nature. These assets are um, status. These assets are emotional, um, social in the sense that, you know, you buy this ape, this board ape or whatever, and suddenly you're now a part of this community, part of this group. Um, and you can talk about that. You, you, their status in the sense that you can now buy an ape or buy a crypto punk or whatever, change that to your profile picture or just have it in your wallet and people kind of associate you with someone with means, you know, someone with money. And, uh, and that's a, a, a flex, you know, form of status. And then also the emotional aspect, if I change my, you know, uh, some NFT that I bought to my Twitter profile picture, I now kind of have an, an attachment to that, to that picture, an emotional attachment, because I'm thinking, oh, wow, people are now associating this, this, you know, uh, image with, with me. Therefore it's, it's almost like my identity. I feel a really great attachment to that thing. So um, these are like the, there's many more other like kind of human factors, but those are like the most important. And I think that um, that's what, what drives a lot of the behavior and kind of incentives and, and, and uh, yeah, kind of activity in the space. Um, and so, yeah, the question was, do I think that status is going to continue to be a, a driver uh, of major activity in the space, particularly with punks? Absolutely. I think that it's like NFTs are, uh, you know, the new social media in my mind where Social media is, is you, you, people flex on social media. Like, the, I mean, even if they don't mean to flex, they still do. So, you know, you, you take a picture of where you're traveling to, of where, what dinner you're eating of, of, you know, kind of what car you're driving or whatever, or whatever. And you're not, or like even a selfie, you're not just like waking up in the morning, taking a picture of yourself and like posting that right away. No, you want like, you want to look good. You want to like smile and, and get, get the right picture and, and you get the right kind of look and everything like that. And then you post it, right? It's a very curated kind of kind of view on someone's life. And really it comes down to you want to show other people what you're about and what you're doing. And, and, and that in some senses is displaying your status. And so NFTs take social media to the nth degree because instead of inferring through pictures that, oh, I'm so rich because I'm traveling to, I don't know, you know, this this cool island or whatever, or eating this amazing steak dinner, um, you can just look at someone's wallet and you can determine right away, okay, wow, they have so much money because First of all, I can see their wallet balance. It's a lot. And then also I can see, wow, they, they own all these assets. Like, wow, they're, they're so rich. They own five CryptoPunks and two apes and like all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and, and also like in terms of uh, another way to, to get status is to kind of um, be early into something. I think is early in, the, in like a cool group thing is, is very exciting where, I don't know, if you're the first person to really, out of your friends, let's say, to discover like, I don't know, Justin Bieber, like some, some famous person. You, you were early with Justin Bieber and you're like, this guy's going to be amazing. He's so cool, blah, blah, blah. And your friends didn't really listen to you, but then he ends up becoming really huge. Suddenly all your friends are like, wow, like, you know, Andrew's got really good 
really good eye for the stuff. He's so cool. He's, he's very, um, you know, hip to new things or whatever. And it's it, with NFTs, you can just prove that. So I can say, oh, I was the first person to buy, I don't know, Decentraland property. Like you can look at my wallet. I was literally the first person. I know OpenSea recently uh, said like, hey, uh, Nostro was the first registered user on our on OpenSea. And Nostro was like, yeah, I know it was so cool, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly now Nostro has a lot of status from that, from that event, right? Um, and, and it's provable on chain. And so, yeah, I, I think that uh, NFTs are like the, the, the best, it's the most efficient means to seek and achieve status ever created so far. And therefore that alone will propel them, just the status aspect. And that's just like one human factor. And we even talk about like the sociability or a community aspect, like th- those, are, those are other factors will continue to propel NFTs. And then th- that, that, those are human factors, don't, don't even have to do with uh, you know, finance or monetary incentives. Then on the other side, you have a whole bunch of monetary incentives. So it's like, um, you know, that's a whole nother can of worms that will continue to, will continue to propel NFTs to, to, you know, massive, massive use uses. And so, yeah, I, I just think that, uh, these, the, the, the cat's out of the bag and there's no way to kind of put it back in. Um, and, um, and I think that, yeah, they're just going to expand even more so than what we've seen And in the past few months have been some pretty crazy growth and we're seeing volumes drop off, but by no means does that diminish my enthusiasm for, for where this is going. And when you say monetary incentives, um, what, what specifically are you talking about? Are you talking about like royalties built into NFTs and, and other use cases as such, or you talking about kind of like financialization of NFTs where you'll be able to sort of use your NFT as collateral, borrow against it and, and so on? Yeah, exactly. It would be a, a use case, like using your NFT as collateral, like that is a monetary related use case, or it'd be um, you hold this NFT and you get royalties on secondary fees or whatever, like that is another monetary incentive. So uh, what we're doing is we're combining, and not, not always, but in some instances, we're combining um, a, so- a social or status kind of thing with a monetary incentive. Like, and, and so that is extremely, extremely powerful because um, people are driven by seeking status. They're driven by sociability. They're driven by inclusiveness and, and being, a part of, be, be, uh, uh, being a part of a group. And also driven by monetary incentives, right? So um, with these assets, we're combining those two factors together. So I always like point out crypto is a pure monetary game. All the objectives are, are, are economic and you want to make money and all the incentives are economic. And that's pretty much the sole purpose. NFTs are, are kind of this different world where it's combining the human factor with economic incentives. So that's, what's, that's what makes them so powerful. That's also why I think that they, they hit upon you know, the broader populace so much faster than crypto did. Because crypto has been sounding the alarm on uh, for years about why Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these different currencies are, are are so great, but no one really no one really cared. Like the vast majority of the population doesn't really mind too much. But NFTs that they're hitting upon, you know, the human factor, which brings them in a lot a lot faster than economic incentives. And once they get involved in in the ecosystem initially, that's when they they kind of uh, kind of pay attention more to the economic incentives. But and also like one thing I like to call NFTs are monetizable memes because they're internet native. So they have the power to spread like a meme as quickly as a meme. And I think uh, memes are like some of the best communication tools in the world where you know, you'll know you send a funny meme to like hundred of your friends and then they'll send to hundred of their friends and so on and so forth and it gets spread like crazy. And so um, what we just did with NFTs is that we've attached monetary value to that meme, right? So suddenly you've created the most effective communication tool and attached a monetary value to that. Therefore, that is going to, like, 
I've, I've written a blog about this back in the day. I think it was I don't know, last year or something like that. But if someone can create a way to effectively monetize memes, uh, my idea was putting a very, very small uh, ad, like a very small ad at the bottom of the meme or top of the meme or whatever, and just be like ticker, ticker, uh, ticker symbol style, where it says like, go to Coinbase and buy Bitcoin or whatever, right? And then the meme just, 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 just on top of that, but everything is kind of on chain. Um, that was my really lame kind of five minute thinking idea for it. But um, if someone can really figure out how to effectively monetize memes, oh my gosh, we're going to have like meme markets are going to be some of the world's biggest markets. I know it sounds funny, but people will be incentivized to the best meme creators will be rewarded for creating viral memes. And, and it could be political, it could be non-political, it could be advertising, it could be whatever. Um, and I think that that would be another massive, massive use case. But anyway, sorry, that was, that was a tangent. Um, but yeah, that's basically, that's basically how, how I think about it. Yeah. Awesome. I think it's going to be interesting with when you start adding um, either like street cash flow streams to to NFTs, right, through royalty or or so on, or other financial use cases. I'm curious the impact it's going to have on the floors, like on the valuations, right? Because you can discount the cash flows, like everyone else has to do it, or, or like most people know that that's how you value an asset. Like it's much easier to value something that has a cash flow in terms of determining the fair value, right? And so um, I would think that it should remove some of the downside volatility um, in in NFTs once uh, some of those benefits are available, um, just because you'll have more kind of finance types uh, look at it and say, look, like the fair value based on discount in the future cash flows is x right so if it's below i'm gonna buy it so it, it should bring in that extra level of of demand um at at kind of the fair value price and i know dark forest is probably super excited about meme markets um he's been working on his meme skills for for a while now so yeah no so it, it's it's funny you say that about the uh adding the kind of cash flows to nfts because I was speaking with uh, someone who is like a collectibles expert. I think they, I forget which company they work for, but some big collectible company. And basically what they discovered is that when they, when the collectible was just, just a collectible, like there was no added functionality to the asset, it would trade at like whatever price, like there was no set, set price for it. It was just like whatever people, it's like arts. It's like the beauties in the eye of the beholder. And then when they added certain functionality to that asset, uh, suddenly it changed the whole dynamic of how that thing was valued. And it was suddenly valued based off of the functionality. And so, you know, you could say that uh, suddenly it would be valued based off the, you know, the, the, the cash flow, the, the discount of cash flow. So I, I think that that's going to be a very good thing for the space, but also at the same time, I wouldn't want, want it to impact uh, the current, I don't know, dynamics of, of, the, of the markets now in, in a negative fashion where uh, I do think some stuff is overvalued, some stuff is undervalued, but really at the end of the day, it's like a lot of the stuff, a lot of the non-functional stuff, sorry, because they're the functional items do or can produce some sort of cash flow, so that that trades on a more like normal basis. But things like art or collectibles, um, I think they should trade at whatever people want. Like people buy traditional art for like millions of dollars. So who's to say that you can't buy a CryptoPunk for millions of dollars, right? Like it's kind of, uh, I think that that that's what that's what makes it so exciting. So yeah, on one hand, I'm looking forward to being able to more fair fairly value these assets, but on the other hand, I don't, I don't want it to uh, impede any of the any of the Kind of innovation that's happening today in, in the space. Absolutely. I think uh, just about wrapping up, I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, so in terms of like NFT use cases, right? Um, what 
like what's the next what's the next big thing right like what what are you really excited about that you don't see many many people talking about as sort of as an nft use case oh man yeah so i would say i'm really excited there's so many things i'm really excited about but um one of the things i'm particularly very excited about is the kind of financialization uh of nfts or the financial financial related use cases around nfts there are a ton of really cool things coming up that is going to enable new behaviors and new markets to form that didn't exist in the NFT space previously. And um, so you'll still have the current ecosystem totally intact, but you'll be able to do um, new activities that you weren't able to before. And because of those new activities you're able to do, those will spawn new markets, right? So it's, so it's, a, it's like a pure value plus in my mind to the space. And it's going to bring a new type of participant. It'll bring one side will bring uh, people like regular users inside that um, want to you know get involved in certain assets uh, on a deeper level. And on the other side, it'll bring in more kind of the DeFi type uh, type participants in, in, inside markets, which I think is also uh, going to be a, a value add. So yeah, again, it's it's that thing I was kind of touching upon before that I couldn't dive deeply into, but I'm very very excited about uh, the financialization of NFTs. Not so like, you know, when we think of financialization, we think of like, I don't know, the Fed and like the banks doing like nefarious stuff. I'm thinking in terms of more, hey, let's utilize our NFTs in more uh, economic ways that make sense and enable new behaviors and markets to form. And so, so that, that's how I see it. Not, not in terms of like, let's create like a CDO and like, you know, kind of crash the whole market or whatever, right? Um, so that, that's what I would say is I'm very excited about. I think that that use case will be coming out uh, shortly. Yeah, and uh, you know we usually try to get a few alpha leaks in in these podcast episodes. Obviously, you're not you're not uh, you know running a, a a protocol or or a DAO or uh, whatnot. So I'm going to ask you um, about maybe you know one of the investments that you guys made recently um, that you know that that you kind of are quite uh, are really excited about and and. It's really up to you in terms of you know what you can and and can disclose, but it'd be great to know kind of what what you guys are looking at. Yeah. So oh man, there's a ton of really cool things. So Nifty Islands is is something that we're really really excited about. It is a essentially a, a you know virtual world platform, if you will, that essentially gives everyone land for free when they first enter the world. I think that to me was a big barrier and uh, to broader adoption of virtual world because you know crypto voxel somnium decentraland i love these platforms i'm a user of these platforms we're investors in these platforms but um the the, the, the land the, the initial land price is too high for people to to, to for like new entrants to, to participate right like i i don't want to spend a thousand dollars to try out a platform in, in like its fullest extent right you can you can go to crypto voxels and like you you know use the use a platform however you like go to meetups and whatnot but in order to build have the full experience you need to buy land. And so that's something that I think is uh, exciting to have Nifty Islands be a place where um, anyone can have land from the get-go that, that, that democratizing that is, is important. Um, that being said, I do think that CryptoVoxel, Decentraland, and these other platforms, they have a really important spot in the metaverse. I don't see, uh, like not everywhere can be like New York or San Fran. Like there's going to be certain places that are like, I don't know, like, you know, Illinois, like, like the farm, like, you, you know what I mean? Like, I think that 
you need that diversity in order for it to really become like the quote unquote metaverse, like a, a true diversified ecosystem, because you don't want everyone using just one platform. Um, so, you know, that's how I see uh, Nifia and, and, and these other platforms. Um, there's another one called Trade Stars, which is essentially like a, um, you can think of it like so rare, which is the fantasy soccer game. But what's cool about Trade Stars is that they really, they're, they're targeting cricket initially. And it's just like a, a um, fantasy cricket game where everyone is, is uh, um, kind of, you know, betting on certain players and, and their real world stats will affect their, their traded, their, their publicly traded price of, of the player that you're, that you're kind of lying or shorting, which I think is really cool. There's Yield Guild Games, of course, that, that has been just blowing up recently. Uh, Gabby, who I've known forever, is, is just a, a legend. And yeah, he's a founder of Yield Guild. And basically what they're doing is they're creating, or they have created a DAO that essentially is a, it's a play to earn DAO where they go into different uh, games and they figure out, okay, what mechanisms uh, can we, what, what processes can we do within these worlds and that, that generate yield. And that to me is really, really exciting because it's essentially like a, almost like an index in play to earn because you can just invest in Yield Guild and they'll go out and they'll do all the work for you um, through their monetary incentives to attract people to go, you know, do X, Y, Z actions within these games that generate yield. And all you do is you just invest in them and they just kind of do all that process for you. So I see them as like a, a play on play to earn in general or like crypto gaming in general. So that's really, really great. Um, there's uh, Seed Club, which is a social token incubator um, made by, or, you know, not, not made by, but headed by uh, Jess Sloss, who's also a, a great friend. He was super early in social tokens. And I'm very, very excited about uh, how social tokens uh, operate today and where they're going to go. And, and there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. And what's great about Seed Club is that they're very transparent in like how they think about this and how things are evolving. They say, listen, there is no set, um, there's no like best practices and we're an incubator for people that want to create social tokens. So we're going to figure it out. Right. And I think that that's really important. It's almost like that education, that class that we were talking about before of, okay, there's a really cool technology. What they're doing is they're on the bleeding edge and figuring out, uh, talking to all, all the best people and figuring out and working with all the, all the best people to figure out how do we utilize social tokens in, in the most effective way. And that's really, really exciting to me. And, um, oh man, there's like so many others. I mean, there's, a, I've, I'm looking at a full list here, but you know, I, I don't want to just keep rambling on and on, but there's just a lot of really, really incredible things and also very diverse that, that are all being uh, built now. So it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, sounds like you're passionate about all all of your investments, man. Look, thanks for thanks for coming on. I I think you know it'd be great to have you on another time to talk about virtual virtual real estate and social tokens. I think those are going to be sort of um, some of the building blocks for for the metaverse as well, and and something that especially on the social token side is not widely covered yet. Um, but I think for now we've, uh, kind of run, ran out of time a little bit. Um, Andrew, thanks so much for coming in, man. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. AG dark forest. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really, really love your questions and looking forward to uh, chatting again. Thanks awesome. so much, Andrew. Thanks everyone. Thanks.